you will, grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Man, it's good to see so many in here this morning. Uh, every Sunday, I'm amazed because I hear of people who are on vacation or hanging out at the campground or, or just away over the weekend, and, and my um, pessimism, I think, man, it's not going to be a very big Sunday. And then I come to church, and it's like packed. You can't find a seat, and I'm just blown away. So, man, I don't know what would happen if everybody showed up on the same Sunday. We would have, it'd be like Metropolitan Baptist back in London during the days of Charles Spurgeon, where they would literally open the windows, and people would stand outside and just listen because they couldn't get into the room. And so maybe that day's coming for us, but we will accommodate you the best we can by moving to two services at some point, maybe three services, four services, Saturday evening service, I don't know. We'll just, uh, you'll make sure you get your money's worth in this preacher. Absolutely. Mark chapter 12, we're going to be there in just a moment, but uh, we're going to conclude uh, our series that we've been in over the last uh, eight Sundays uh, during the months of July and August. And I began the series back first Sunday in July, sharing a story about Jason and his neighbor, Sean. Remember that story if you were here? Uh, Jason had a new neighbor moved in, Sean and his wife and his children, and so Sean and Jason were talking out by the driveway, and this was the third interaction that they had had since Sean and his wife and kids had moved in. First interaction happened when Jason and his wife uh, took a freshly baked apple pie, half gallon of ice cream, went next door just as the movers had finished up and, and had left you know, leaving everything in the house, and now it's their job to unpack it. And so they went over just to meet them and to welcome them to the neighborhood. The second interaction happened a week or so later. They invited that family over to their house. They're all sitting in the backyard on a, on a nice evening and just chatting as the kids are playing, just kind of wanting to get to know each other now that they are next-door neighbors. And now this third, interac third interaction is happening at the driveway, and uh, Jason and Sean are talking, and just kind of about the, the difficulty and the stress that comes with moving to a new neighborhood, a new community, getting to know people, and, and just making those much-needed connections. And so Jason wanted to use this as an opportunity to invite Sean and his family to church. And so as they're talking about that, he just simply asks, hey, man, would you, and, uh, wouldn't you and your wife and kids love to join my wife and I in church tomorrow? We'd love for you to be our guest down at the church house. And so Sean replies, man, I'd love that. I appreciate that. I'd love to connect with the local church. So I shared that story with you to kind of set up this series. And, and really the, the idea there was for us to have a conversation about the church. Because we attend church. Many of us are members of this church. But do we really understand what that means? You see, when you invite someone to church, what are you inviting them to? Are you inviting them to come and to be a spectator at a makeshift concert where you have some singing and then some guy gets up and talks? What is the church? There's all kinds of ideas that circulate out there about the church. Some of them are good. Some of them are biblical. Some of them are not so good. In fact, they are nothing more than secular humanism with perhaps a little bit of Christianity slathered across the top. When we look into the Bible, what we see in the New Testament is this one word that's repeatedly used to speak of and to illustrate the church. That word is ecclesia. I told you back in July, you've heard it many times, but ecclesia is a compound word. It comes from the preposition ek, which means out of, and the verb kaleo, which means to call. And so Lord literally means the called out ones or to call out. In Greek culture, ecclesia stood for those who basically were representatives of the people who had been called out to set in a court system or a court setting and deliberate and to talk about and to represent the people, to discuss the affairs of the state. We look in the New Testament and we see that this term speaks of people who have been called out of the world, gathered by God, and put into a family, his family. We learn that God uses the church as a vehicle for displaying his glory and his goodness to his creation. You see, these redeemed representatives, you and I who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, when we are gathered as the church, we are displaying God's glory and God's wisdom to a watching world. 
Unbelievers see that. Even the spiritual beings that we cannot see, see and are marveled by what we do and how we act and how we interact as the people of God. We discover in the New Testament that the church has an exclusive message. It's the gospel. We see that the church has ordinances, baptism, as we saw earlier, the Lord's Supper, where we symbolize and portray the gospel message. And so as we think about the church, it is altogether unique. We're not like any other organization. We're not the Rotary Club. We're not the Lions Club. We're not a committee of political status. We're none of those things. We are the people of God who operate as God has laid out. That's what we've been looking at this summer. Now, we could go months on end talking about all the intricacies of the church, but this morning as we conclude this series, our objective has been throughout it to lay out and to talk about some of the structures that strengthen and enable the church to display the glory of God. We talked about mission. We've talked about membership. We've talked about attendance and discipline. We've talked about authority. We tackled that subject that was uh, difficult in the area of women. What, are, what is women's role in the church? What should they be a part of? What should they not be a part of? We tackled loving one another in church. I mean, that's hard to do sometimes. You know, we're all different. Look around. None of, none of us look the same. None of us act the same. We all have different stories, different backgrounds. And yet when we come under the umbrella of the local church, we're one. We're called to love one another. We are, we've been gifted the ability, the power through the Holy Spirit to love one another. Last week we talked about ordinances and what those mean, what they portray in the gospel. And this morning we are ending this series talking about stewardship in the church. Now I know I've been a Christian long enough, I've been in church long enough, I've been pastoring long enough that... To know that when I mentioned the word stewardship, some of you physically might have, but mentally for sure, you put your hand on your pocketbook. Right? You, you understand that if I mention or if one of our elders or one of our staff gets up and talks about the area of finances and stewardship, you're anticipating a campaign, right? Oh, are we going back to New Day? Is this a new version of 2024? What are you asking me to do, Pastor? That's what we think of. What we need to understand is when we talk about stewardship, yes, it involves those aspects of giving, those aspects of, uh, of managing our resources, but it's so much more than that. For some reason, though, when we hear that term, it becomes a frightful and unpleasant subject to wrestle with. May I suggest this morning the reason it's largely difficult is because we have the wrong perspective of stewardship. I noticed that and I didn't have any say in the songs that we sung this morning, but if you notice what we were singing today, it was all about the glory of God and the beauty of God and the grace of God and how worthy he is. You see, I think when we think of stewardship, we have the wrong perspective. Because when we have God's glory and his goodness and his power and his gifts that he just wants to benevolently give to us, giving is a whole lot easier for us. So our perspective's wrong. We're going to see a lady this morning who has the proper perspective when it comes to stewardship. But I believe to the average church member, stewardship, as I said, is that finance campaign to raise money for the next project. Stewardship, however, is much more than that. Another reason this subject is unpleasant is because of the stress and the anxieties that you have in your own life. And so to add on to that is difficult. This week you experienced probably some of that. You got a bill that you didn't expect from a doctor. You thought insurance was covering all of it, and all of a sudden you're hit with a $800 bill. Oh, by the way, you still owe this. Well, I paid my $50 copay. Nope, you owe $800 more. I had oral surgery on Tuesday, and neither medical or dental is saying they're going to cover it. And so uh, I'm probably going to be stuck with the $800 bill of what they did there. And so it, it is what it is. We live with these, but you go through these stresses in our lives. 
And so it's from that unexpected bill. Sometimes the stress is it's just because you, were, you had so much on your plate this week. You're running from appointment to appointment to appointment. And so you came in this morning frazzled and stressed. And now I'm lumping on this subject of stewardship. And you're thinking, I wish I would have known. Because Bedside Baptist would have sounded so much better this morning. Amen? <laughs> Bedside Baptist has a lot of attenders. A lot of attend, Not in our church, but in, but in other churches, of course. These anxiety producers that we deal with, what are they doing? Well, they're lobbying for our time and they're lobbying for our money. Did you, did you know that the clock and the dollar have substantial influence in so many parts of our life? And so since they have such a substantial influence in our lives, if we're going to think about biblical stewardship and, and what it means to allow the Lord to be Lord over our finances and Lord over our calendars and Lord over the talents and the gifts that he's given us, we have to consider them into the equation. Does the Lord have Lordship over my time? Does he have lordship over my pocketbook? Does he have lordship over my hands and the abilities that he's given me? So it's imperative that we learn how to better steward our lives and better steward our families and better steward our time and our money and better steward our ministries and everything that God has entrusted to us. We would be foolish as a church if we didn't take a step back and each and every year look at how we spend our money and think of better ways to do it. Where is the most strategic way or place to put a dollar? Where is the most strategic place to put our time and our resources? We would be fools not to look at those things. So if it's true of the church, should it not also be true of the family and individuals that are represented And so it's imperative that we do that. We need to be stewards. Now, what is a steward? I think it's important to make sure that we understand the terms that we're using. And so what is a steward? Now, biblically speaking, a steward is one who is a household or estate manager. I know some of you are biblical scholars in here, and so you know the stories of the Bible. And so go with me in your mind to Genesis chapter 31. In Genesis 39, what you have there is a story of... Joseph, who is a slave in the house of Potiphar. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been purchased by Potiphar. And Potiphar found him to be a, 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 an honest man, a hard worker. And so he elevated him to basically running the show. He had full control of Potiphar's wealth and Potiphar's resources and Potiphar's home. And so he is the quintessential of what it means and what it looks like to be a steward, a household manager. He doesn't own the things, but he manages the things. So when we think about stewardship, to be a steward is to understand that you do not own anything, but you manage what the Lord has laid there in your hands. So the fact that you and I are managers and not owners implies that everything we have is a gift from the Lord. Right? Everything you have is a gift from the Lord. You have children this morning. I don't, it doesn't matter if they're 50 years old or 5 years old. If you have children, they're a gift from the Lord. They're not yours. They're the Lord's. And so I, this is what I've seen even when I was a youth pastor years ago and a collegiate pastor years ago. I would see this in Christian parents where they would, they would do everything they could to in, discourage and to prevent their child, their teenager, their college student from answering the call to go on the mission field. Oh, I don't want little junior to do that. It's dangerous over there. Who are you to make that decision? If the Lord's calling them, and my prayer is that out of our church, God would begin to raise up more and more of our students and our young people and even our senior adults that would say yes to the mission field and yes to being pastor and yes to church planting. Why? Because God is in control there. So let's embrace that. Everything we have is a gift from the Lord. The car you drove to the campus this morning, that's the Lord's car. You might say, well, the Lord needs to upgrade his car a little bit. I'd say that too. But I'll drive whatever it gives me. Amen? 
So we're managers and not owners. I think the reason um, the Lord said what he said about stewardship is because of Did you know that 15% of everything Jesus said in the New Testament specifically relates to the stewardship of money? It's more than his teachings on both heaven and hell combined. You, you take those subjects and you combine them together and it does not equate what Jesus had to say about finances. So why does he put such emphasis on this area of life? I believe Jesus spoke a lot about money because money says a lot about you and I. What we do with our money, how we handle our money, how we hold our money, how we hoard our money says a lot about who we are as an individual. Johnny Hunt, my friend and mentor in life, has rightly said over the years, you're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. Man, if I want to be like Jesus, and that should be the goal of our lives, you're never more like Jesus than when you're giving of your time and of your talents and of the treasure that he's given to you. So money is a window into our hearts. The story of our lives is told by how we live and what we do with what we have during our short time in this world. Stewardship, then, is something that we must correctly understand. It's something that we must master in our lives. Define it as an estate manager. We're not the owner, but we're the manager of the one who does own it. If that's true, then we need to take seriously the responsibility and the privilege that we've been given to manage what the Lord has entrusted to us. Look with me in Mark chapter 12. Where's my glasses? It's all right. Fine. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. And he, that is Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus here, in these words that he is saying to the disciples as he sits there and watches this uh, story be unfold, unfolded, points out a fundamental connection between our spiritual life and our finances. Now, we want to try to divorce faith from finances, but as you see here, God sees them as being inseparable. They are tied, they're tethered one to another. We, however, would come to, when we come face to face with his glory and his grace, the grace that we find in Jesus, we understand that it changes our perspective of money. We begin to see it not as something to live for, but something to give away. It's something to leverage for the kingdom of God. I think that's what's happening here in this passage. You've got a, a widow woman. Uh, the presumption would be that she's an elderly woman, and obviously she's a poor woman, and she comes and she gives her best. She gives her all to the Lord, and she's contrasted over and against wealthy people who came and gave of their surplus large amounts of money, right? So if we were doing a ledger here, we would have said the lady's gift is nil and the abundant gifts were incredibly generous. But the Lord doesn't see it that way. He's, he's got a spiritual connection here which tells us many, many things, things that we don't have time to get into today. But he clearly makes the connection of the spiritual aspect of our stewardship. This morning, I want us to look at how the Bible portrays Christian giving in three ways. First of all, I want you to see that the Bible tells us that Christians give joyfully. Joyfully. This poor widow gave all she had to the Lord. 
And Jesus knew what she gave because he intently watched her. Can you imagine this morning Jesus is up here on the stage and the offering plates are being passed and Jesus is like, yeah, I see what Bobby gave. Yeah. I got you, Jason. See you. Good boy. Cheering you on. Can you imagine that? I mean, most of us give online. I know that. We give online. If you never see us put something in the offering plate, this full disclosure, we give online. Um, <laughs> I'm never going to ask you to do something I'm not personally doing. And, and try, we try to lead the way in stewardship of our time, our talents, and definitely our treasure. And so we give online. Most people do. And, and it's convenient, right? I don't know if it's the best way of giving. Honestly, full disclosure, I don't think it's the best way to give. Number one, part of that money goes to credit card companies for the, so if you give $10, a part of that is going to Visa or whoever. So there's that aspect of it, but it also, there's a worship element that I think is lost in all of that because it's out of sight, out of mind, especially if you just set it up to automatically deduct from your account a certain amount. Now, there's a good thing in that. It means you're never going to be delinquent in that. You're always going to be faithful in your giving. But you also, because you didn't think about it and you didn't act on it in an act of worship, you're losing some of the aspect. That's free. That has nothing to do with today's sermon. But um, when we give, we need to give joyfully. And this woman here is giving joyfully. And Jesus is watching. And Jesus sees that in her. So he tells us here. Mark does, that she put in two tiny copper coins that added up to a penny. You say, how much is a penny? Because in American currency in 2023, a penny ain't buying you nothing. And that's a double negative to enforce what I was trying to get across. You're not buying anything with a penny. You can't buy anything with a nickel. I can remember as a child, you could go down to the, uh, uh, to the convenience store and you could get at least a gumball for maybe a nickel or a dime. You're not doing any of that today. It's 25 cents or more. I, I don't know what they cost these days because I don't chew gum. But this lady puts in two tiny copper coins, adds up to a penny, and in that day, in that currency, it was about one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which would have been a day's wage. So you're talking about pennies in American currency. Such a small gift, but Mark tells us that's all that she had. And Jesus here watches her put the coins in the box, and he calls his disciples together to teach them a lesson. We might think that Jesus would call them together and say, man, did you see what she gave? It wasn't very much. But those other guys and gals, man, they gave lots. He doesn't applaud that. He doesn't applaud the amount. He applauds the heart. He applauds the sacrifice. He applauds the worship. He applauds the joy in giving. And so he brings his disciples together, and he uses this object lesson to teach them about giving and about stewardship. The Lord commended her gift. The Lord sets her up as a model for his disciples, you and I, to follow. Now, as she's giving this gift, as she's putting those two small copper coins into the offering box, what do you think her facial expression was? Was it like your facial expression this morning when the offering plate was passed? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I face forward. I don't purposely. I purposely don't look at you during that time. What was her facial expression like? I tend to believe in my sanctified imagination, that she was joyful. That she was joyful. It was everything she had, Mark tells us. But I believe there's joy there. there because there was something about her. I think Jesus saw it on her face. He obviously knew her heart. But I believe he saw it on her face as well. Because when something's in your heart, it's usually going to show in your face. And so she had joy in her giving. See, for us, conversion and the filling of the Spirit of God are supernatural experiences that always produce supernatural responses. And when you're filled with the Spirit, there's joy in your life. When you're walking in the Spirit's control in your life, there's joy. And this widow here supernaturally gave her all to God. There's no other way you would give your all to God unless God is supernaturally empowering you to do so. So she saw giving as an opportunity, listen to this, rather than an obligation. 
She came to the temple that day to worship him, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but out of an opportunity to do ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. She gave her all. She gave her best. Christian giving is joyful giving. This woman delighted in the fact that she got to see God miraculously provide for her. She didn't come begrudgingly to give. No, she came to joyfully give. She saw her gift as a way to describe worth to the Lord or ascribe worth to the Lord. He was her greatest treasure. Can we say that about our, our own lives? Is Jesus our greatest treasure or is the latest toy that we have our greatest treasure? Yesterday morning, I um, spent about five or six hours on Lake Chesden, which is my happy place. If it's not a tree stand or a football game or somewhere in my family, it's on a lake. That's where, that's where I'm happy, and that's what I love to do. And uh, so I have not been able to fish since uh, early April or middle part of April because of shoulder surgery. And, and then I had a mechanical issue with my motor on my boat. And so I, doubly, I couldn't even go joy, joy riding because it wasn't a joy to get out there and not go fast. Yesterday morning, after having the boat serviced this past week and it not breaking the bank, and man, I was just happy. You, you men, maybe you ladies, if, you've, if you love to be on the lake, you love to go fast on the lake, and, and when things go right, you just know the grin. And so I'm, I'm just cruising down Lake Chesden. And I'm not a real expressive person, but this is what I'm doing down Lake Chesden. Woo! Woo! I mean, it was awesome. It was great, Right? I, I love, and I, I just, I'm driving on the lake, and it's one of those worship moments. I was like, Lord, thank you for this boat. I bought it in January. Lord, thank you. Thank you it didn't cost me a whole lot of money to fix this thing this week. All right, because what is a boat? About another thousand. That's what I was thinking all week long as it was in the shop. And so I was just thanking the Lord for that. Here's the question, though. If the Lord took that from me, would I be just as happy? If I'm walking with the Lord and he is my treasure, Absolutely. See, we got to be willing to live with palms up and whatever we have, understand it's a gift from him and he's entrusted it to us, which means there are moments when he reaches down and takes it away. And I've got to be willing to not grab it and hold on for dear life, but trust the master because he knows better than I do of what I need and what he wants to do in using me. Christian giving is joyful giving. There's the second thing we see here. Christians give faithfully. In making much of this poor widow's gift, Jesus told his disciples that she gave everything to the Lord. Now what she did thrilled his heart because she did it in faith. I think that's what he sees here. He sees the expression, but what's behind the expression is faith. What's behind that joy is a, a, a predetermined faith in the Lord. Can you imagine if the Lord told you today, I want you to liquidate everything you own, your house, your, your properties, your, your, your uh, cars, whatever you own, the beach house, the lake on Chesapeake Bay. Can I get a little amen for that? Some of you that own, yeah, I, I know who some of you are. And, and so I understand that. It's like if the Lord came to me and says, hey, you know that skeeter that you love so much? It needs to go to somebody else. I'd be like, mm, mm. but if I'm walking with Jesus, faithful giving, I'm going to trust you in this. So she gives all that she has to the Lord. And that's how we're to live our lives. You know, Paul said in Romans 14, 23, that anything that's not of faith is sin. So we have to believe God and trust God and obey God in that. Mark here does not tell us why the widow gave all that she had to the Lord. It would seem that she gave above and beyond what she was supposed to. So you're supposed to tithe of what the Lord has given you, but she comes with everything. You'd say, well, it's so small. How do you divide those little copper coins? Are you supposed to cut them up into, into tents? I, I don't know. But it seems that she gave above and beyond what was required of her. Apparently, she must have sensed that's what the Lord wanted her to give, that specific amount beyond what was required by the law. And in doing so, what is happening here? She's exercising faith. She's trusting the Lord to take care of her needs. And this is exactly what the Lord would expect of us, that we would faithfully give as he's directed 
This morning, I want you to do a quick examination of your giving record this past year. From September till today, as you have given unto the Lord, what does that record look like? That ought to sting a little bit for some of us. It ought to sting if we think of, man, I haven't given anything to the Lord. Or I've not given near what I'm supposed to give to the Lord. That, that ought to sting a little bit. So what does that mean if, if that's characteristic of your life? Well, Malachi would tell us that you're a thief and a robber. That you've robbed God. Because he is worthy of it. He expects it and he wants it. Why does he want it? Not because he needs it. The Bible tells us God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, speaks of his infinite wealth. I mean, the God who spoke creation into existence doesn't need your five dollars. So he doesn't want your five dollars, but he wants your heart. And the Bible tells us that where our treasure is, that is where our heart will be. And so many times, often, in fact, our treasure is in things not in the Lord. Our faith is in those things, and it's not in the Lord. And so giving is a way to counteract that in our lives. The Lord would expect us to give faithfully. This year, as you think back about your giving record, can your giving be explained by the supernatural work of God? This woman comes and she gives her all and she trusts the Lord that he's going to miraculously provide for her needs. I mean, you think about her situation. She's a widow. She does not have someone to take care of her. She is in many ways an outcast in her society. She has no husband who would be her protector and her provider. And so the only one who's going to meet her needs is Yahweh of the word of God. You're giving indicative of God's supernatural activity in your life. Several years ago, I heard about a lady in another church who sensed the Lord leading her and her husband to give a certain amount of money. And this amount of money that the Lord had seemingly put in her heart was way more than they could ever give. It was outside their capacity. And so she went faithfully to her husband and says, Hubby, uh, I feel like the Lord wants us to give to this. Uh, would you just take some time and pray and, and see what the Lord would say to you? She never told her husband the amount. She just asked him to pray. He committed to that. He spent some time praying, seeking the Lord's face, came back to her and said, Hey, the Lord has confirmed in my heart a certain amount, and I hope it's not the amount you have because the amount the Lord's put in my heart is way beyond our capacity. What do you think the story, how, what do you think, how do you think the story goes? Same number. Way beyond their means. Lord put it in two people's hearts, man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And so they said, Lord, you've spoken, you've made this clear, we're going to pledge this. It's beyond our means. We don't know how we would ever do this, but we're trusting you, we're believing you in faith. We're taking this step because you've put that in our hearts. They pledged it. A couple days later, the wife was cleaning out an area of their, uh, where their business was and uh, came across a, a bag of money that uh, a couple years earlier, I guess, maybe consolidating or uh, counting money and supposed to have gone to the bank with it and somehow it didn't make it to the bank and just kind of sat there in a storage area somehow for a couple of years. She finds the money and it's the exact amount of money that they were supposed to give to this pledge. Now you think, well, that's just a preacher story, right? You just make that stuff up. You conjure those things. You just tell these little stories to play in our hearts and, you know, play those strings so that we'll like, ooh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that happens all the time. In Karenai's life, I can tell you the Lord has led us to do certain things, and, and on paper it never made sense. But you know what? When we stepped out in faith and did it, he always provided. I've told you before, when Karenai sensed God's calling to move our family from northwest Alabama to come to Virginia, it made no sense on paper, financially. 
I made good money at a church I was on staff at. We had everything that we wanted. We had a nice house. We had all those things. I sold a house in Alabama. I bought a house here, not much bigger, but $130,000 more in payment. You do the math on that one. Salary-wise was basically the same as sort of a lateral move financially for all of us as far as what the income is. But you know how expensive it is to live in Powhatan and live in Virginia and the taxes versus a southern state. And so on paper, we were in the red every single month. But you know what God has done every single month? He's always provided. I've never lacked a thing. Now, thankfully, I don't make what I made then. You guys have been generous to us and blessed us, and we're grateful for that, but that's the Lord's gift. So we have given faithfully, and we have tried our very best to live faithfully, understanding always that where God is guiding and God is leading, God is always providing. Again, Johnny Hunt said this. He says, people that are not willing to trust God to do the impossible will not trust God to go beyond the brink of the Jordan. They will never know the promised land or victorious Christian living. Instead, they will live with conventional wisdom. And I would say a life of faithful stewardship is not lived by conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom would have said, stay in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, life is good. Or stay in Kentucky before I went to Alabama because it was the same story there, life is good. Or don't give to this certain thing because life is good. And if you do that, then you're going you're gonna to make things tight in the pocketbook. A life that trusts God, believe in him to make a way when there seems to be no way, that is a life that's not lived by conventional wisdom. So Christians give faithfully. Thirdly and lastly, Christians give obediently. This widow gave obediently even though conventional wisdom would have told her to hang on to what she had. Think about that. Conventional wisdom would have said, ma'am, God knows your heart. God knows your finances. He's seen the ledger book, right? He knows you got two copper coins to your name, and that's not much to buy anything. It's 164th of a day's wage. And so you're a beggar even with the two copper coins. So why would you give that up? At least you got something. God knows your heart. He knows your intentions. He knows what you want to do, but you just don't feel like you can do it. What does she do? She gives obediently. The problem with conventional wisdom is that it always contradicts the word of God. It doesn't take into consideration that God is owed first above and before anything else. You see, the Old Testament law commanded God's people to give a tenth, a tithe from the land. In that agrarian society, everything was acquired from the land. And so the people were to give not just a tenth of their income, but they were also to give the first tenth. It was to come off the top. They were commanded to honor God with the first fruits of their crops. Giving of their first fruits recognized that all good things come from the Lord. And I would encourage, and I do encourage people all the time when we have this conversation, that when you are seeking to be obedient in the area of stewardship, particularly your finances, how do you set your budget up? You put the Lord at first. You put him in the first place. You put him at the top of your budget. Why is that? Because if you put him at the bottom where your conventional wisdom would tell you to put him, there's never anything left. Never anything left. Why? Because all the things that you want to do, not just your bills, you know, your house payment, your car payment, your ever-increasing electrical bill, your uh, food bill, which if you have teenagers like we do is Good gosh, almighty, expensive. When you get all of that, which is every single month increasing, plus the things that you just want to play with, God never gets anything. But if you'll put him at first, it's amazing that when you get to the end of the month, there's something left over. And so that was the commandment in the Old Testament, to give your first, to give your first tenth to the Lord, recognizing his lordship and his first seat status. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Pastor, what you're talking about is Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff. And we live in the New Testament era. We live in the era of the church. We live in the New Covenant era. And so these things that you're talking about don't matter anymore. Well, I would argue against that. But let's just talk about the Old Covenant. Let's talk about the Old Testament for just a moment. We find in the Old Testament that the law required three different tithes. 
Two were perpetual tithes that supported the Levites and sacred festivals. And then the third tithe was given to the poor, and it was received every third year. And so in reality, the Jews were required by the law to give about 23% of their income to the Lord every single year. So it's not just 10%, right? You look at the Old Testament, we're not just talking about 10% of your income. We're talking about 20 plus percent of your income that's going back to and repaying the owner of all things. On top of that, the Old Testament emphasized free will offerings. These voluntary contributions that were taken up to build the tabernacle and to repair the temple on a couple of occasions. All of these were above and beyond, plus the other free will offerings that people offered to the Lord. So we learned then that the tithe was never meant to be a ceiling for giving, but instead it was meant to be a floor. It was a beginning point for God's people in the Old Testament, and I believe it's equally true for us today in the era of the New Testament church. In fact, in the New Testament, nowhere do we see that the tithe has been suspended. Instead, what we see in Matthew 23, 23, that Jesus seems to have affirmed the tithe. Like many teachings of the Old Testament, the teaching there in the New Testament on tithing extended or expanded God's people and how they should view giving. You say, well, but, you know, the law's nil and void. Well, is murder and adultery nil and void? I think those commandments still stand today. And so the tithe still stands today. It was not counteract, counterbalanced or, 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 or nullified by the Lord Jesus. We also learned from church history that all the prominent early church fathers taught it as a requirement for Christian living. So the tithe is not the finish line of giving. It is the entry level of giving. It's in the starting blocks. It's God's historical method to get people on the path of giving. Why did that poor widow give those two copper coins to the Lord when she could not afford to do so? Here's what I would say to that. I believe the woman understood because her joy was in the Lord, her faith was in the Lord, and she sought to be obedient to the Lord. She understood that to not give to the Lord was disobedience. Therefore, she could not afford not to give to the Lord. Man, it's a precarious place to get outside the will of God of your life. You, you think about dangerous place to live. Outside the will of God is a very dangerous place to live. You say, well, pastor, do you believe that the Lord would just rain fire down from heaven on a woman who chose not to give? Maybe. You ever read in Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira? Here's a couple who wanted to look really good amongst their Christian friends at church who were being generous, and they sold a piece of property, gave the impression they gave all of that money to the church for the needs of others, and yet kept a substantial amount of it themselves. And when they were called out on it by Peter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they fell dead in their tracks. Oh, if the Lord still worked like that. Jason and Sean having a conversation out by the driveway. What is Jason doing there? He's strategically and lovingly investing in a new neighbor. Jason is understanding the responsibility he had as a Christian steward, listen to this, to be a conduit of God's grace rather than a depository of it. Man, we need to live that way every single day, leveraging the relationships we have leveraging the resources that we have, which means many times our finances. How are we leveraging them for kingdom purposes? Steve, when he was uh, about to pray earlier in our service, mentioned that when you give through this church, you're enabling us to send short-term mission teams overseas, Puerto Rico and India and other places like that around the globe. You're enabling us as a church to participate and help other church plants here, even in the state of Virginia, and the church plants that we will plant in the future. My, my prayer, our prayer, our goal as elders is to see uh, our church become not just a supporting church of church planting, but a church that actually plants from within our own congregation. 
Man, wouldn't it be awesome that within five years we are planting right here in Powhatan a church out of our congregation? How in that world would that ever happen? Largely through your financial giving. We'll bring a church planter in. Maybe God will raise someone up from within our own congregation and we will plant them and financially support them and back them for a few years until that young church in its infancy is up and running and on its own two feet. Let us be a conduit of grace and never a depository of it. Jason had given the Lord his heart. And when you give your, Lord, your, your heart to the Lord, he gets everything else. I love this story about Lyndon Johnson. During Lyndon Johnson's presidency, a framed letter hung on the wall of his White House office. The letter was written by General Sam Houston to Johnson's great-grandfather, George W. Baines, more than 100 years earlier. Baines had led Houston to Christ, and the general was a changed man. He was known for being coarse and belligerent, but when he came in contact with the gospel and faith into Jesus Christ, he became peaceful and content. After, George, or after General Houston was baptized, which is an incredible event for those who knew him, he offered to pay half of the salary for the minister there in that local community. Someone came up and asked him one day about it. General Houston, why in the world would you offer to pay half of the pastor's salary? This is what he said. My pocketbook was baptized too. When Jesus brought you into faith in, with him and you were baptized in demonstration of that faith act, was your pocketbook baptized as well? Were the gifts and talents that the Lord has given you baptized as well? Was your calendar baptized as well? When we think about stewardship and what that looks like in the church, here's what we need to understand. God owns it all. You own nothing. But you have an incredible opportunity to steward that. Man, the Lord wants to work his glory through your life. The Lord wants you to be like this poor widow who just lays everything down. She's living with palms up, and she says, Lord, my life is yours, and everything in it, it is all yours. Take it. Do what you want with it. It's all for your glory. It's all for your good. Whatever you give me is yours. Whatever you take away from me, I'll rejoice in because I trust you enough that you know what's best. You know what I need, and you're going to give me other opportunities. You're going to give me other avenues and venues. You see, giving for us as Christians ought to not be a duty. It ought to be a delight for us where we have a smile and a joy on our face because there's underlying behind that a heart of faithfulness and a heart of obedience that just wants to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening in our year-end celebration and members meeting, we're going to share a vision for what that ought to look like in our church, and we're going to talk about more so Man, don't you want to come back and hear that? You should. We're also going to talk about when we'll move to two services. Here's what we've been struggling with. Why we haven't just said we are absolutely doing it. It's because we haven't had the volunteer um, sign-ups that we need. What does that tell me? It tells me I know we're busy. Some of you need to step up and say, God's gifted me. God's given me the ability to do certain things, and I want to utilize that in the life of the church. Sometimes we can't always do what we like to do because the finances are a little too short. Has your pocketbook been baptized? You given like you should? It's amazing, and I've tried not to harp on that, but... If you're a member of our church, what did you sign? You signed a covenant that said you will financially support the ministries of this church. And so in essence, if you're not doing that, you're lying to all of us, not to mention the Lord. I don't want to guilt you, but I just want you to feel that for a little bit this morning. But if you're giving faithfully, what else can you do? 
how can the Lord stretch us? I think we ought to have this desire within us to, to live life and to do things in a supernatural way. Because when the Lord calls us, he never calls us to do something we can do on our own. He always calls us to do something that we can't do without his help. And so let God stretch you in 23, 24 in the area of the things God has given you oversight with. Things you're stewarding. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it sounds cliche, but it's not. But we affirm this morning that where you guide, you will provide. Dozens of us in this room could stand and give testimony to that very fact. Because you've guided us in our lives, you've called us to things where we would have looked at and said, there's absolutely no way I could ever do that. There's absolutely no way I'd ever want to do that. And yet we took that step of faith, and you were right there, providing, guiding, directing, resourcing. Lord, this morning we all struggle with stewardship. It is so easy to live with clenched fists. It's so hard to live with palms up. It's so hard for us to realize that we do not own anything and that the things that we have are transient. That you will and often do take them from us. And then you bring other things. We also fail to realize at times that the things that we're managing, the things that we're holding on to so tightly do not last. We can't take them to the life that is after this. They're for this world. But what we do with them is like laying up treasures in heaven for us. And so this morning, I pray that you would just take the words and the story of this lady and Mark chapter 12 and her act of faithfulness and her act of joy and her act of obedience. And Lord, just set that down on our hearts this morning. And help us afresh and anew recommit ourselves to be good stewards of the things that you've entrusted to us. Lord, in this room, there are people who claim to know Jesus Christ, our membership in this church, who do not financially support the ministries of this church. Help them today. Lord, I realize that in many ways they feel trapped. They feel like they can't do anything because of their budget situation, because of their debt load. And so, Lord, I understand that and I empathize with that. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help them. Lord, even right now, put within them a desire to get out from underneath that. God, I thank you for ministry of Financial Peace University, which we offer here. And In fact, we'll start even this Wednesday. Lord, that's a tool for them to learn how to handle their money in a godly and a biblical way so that they can be free from the burden of debt. What a joy it would be to be able to do anything and everything with the money you've given us. We didn't have the burden of debt. Father, I pray for those who are Giving that you would fan the flame to be even more faithful, even more generous, even more joyful in that giving. God, help us to live in such a way that our total dependence is in Jesus Christ and his provision for our life. Would you help us to do that? Lord, like this lady in the text, may we see you glorious, high, lifted up, good, benevolent, generous in our lives. We thank you because you are all of those things and so much more. So we exalt your name this morning. And we ask you to bless and move in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.